the right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, it's often said a faithful friend is a medicine for life, but could this actually be true? New research suggests there's a potential link between the number of friends a person has and their pain threshold. Uh, joining us to discuss this is Katarina Johnson, a doctoral student at the University of Oxford who led the study. Uh, good afternoon to you, Katarina. Uh, hello. Is it actually true? I mean, I've heard of friends being a pain in the neck. I've never, I've never heard of friends actually reducing uh, the, the pain you can suffer. Yeah, so um, you know, we were interested in understanding you know, why people might vary in their social network sizes and in particular um, whether this, you know, maybe related to the activity of a brain chemical um, called endorphin. Um, so endorphins are part of our pain and pleasure circuitry. So they're our body's natural painkillers, um, but they're also important for, you know, the positive feelings that we get when we interact socially. Um, so um, in accordance with this, you know, our results do perhaps suggest that, you know, those individuals that, you know, maintain sort of greater um, connections to, you know, their social ties, you know, perhaps um, are better primed for, um, you know, dealing with pain. Um, But yeah, obviously, it's a trade off with friends, like, you know, sometimes they can be a bit annoying. But, you know, usually, um, you know, our, our friendship network and also our families, you know, can be really supportive, especially in times of need. Uh, and I mean, in terms of the chemical reaction, I mean, endorphins, is it, are they actually that powerful in terms of reducing pain? Yes, yeah, so um, the word endorphin actually comes from the combination of endogenous, meaning from within the body, um, and morphine. Um, and in fact, um, if you consider um, endorphin and morphine at the same um, uh, concentration, um, endorphins are actually more powerful painkillers um, than morphine. Um, and I guess in a way this makes sense because, you know, our bodies are primed to respond to, you know, the natural painkiller that it produces, which is um, endorphin. But obviously, you know, if you're sort of dosed up on morphine, you know, if you're um, suffering from severe pain, then, you know, you will have much higher levels um, of morphine in your body than, you know, is naturally, you know, produced by the by sort of you, for example, you know, when you socialise and release endorphins that way. But if you actually compare it dose for dose, yes, they are stronger. Now, you sound like a very nice woman, so I'm presuming you didn't go and actually torture the people in the study. How did you assess whether or not um, endorphins actually helped, and, and the endorphins released by having friends, actually helped reduce pain? Yeah, so um, this is a sort of a tricky aspect of our field because endorphins um, stay in the brain. Um, so it's very hard to um, measure them directly. And sort of one of the sort of only ways really is to extract spinal fluid, which is obviously very invasive and a not very nice procedure. Um, so instead, we were just interested in getting sort of a really large population of participants um, and sort of using this pain tolerance test as a proxy to look at their endorphin system. Um, and previous sort of studies have done this. Um, and in fact, um, uh, another study has shown that individuals, when they're undergoing a test of muscular pain, um, brain imaging techniques have um, revealed that those individuals with a more active endorphin signaling pathway in their brain are also those individuals who report um, feelings of reduced pain. Um, so when it came to our study, uh, we used sort of a, a physical um, pain test. You might have heard of it if you're a keen gym goer, um, called the wall sit test. So we asked participants to basically squat against the wall with their 
um, knees at a 90 degree angle. So it's basically like you're sitting on a chair, um, but obviously there's no chair there. And it's a pretty uncomfortable exercise. Um, But one of the things we had to bear in mind is that, you know, fitter people, because it's sort of a test of muscular pain, may be better um, able to endure this type of pain test. Um, But we found that even when we sort of allowed for individual differences in fitness in our analysis, um, pain tolerance was still you know, significantly related to an individual social network size. Um, and in fact, an uh, interesting um, other result from our study was that fitter individuals tend to actually have smaller social networks. Well, so, I mean, friends in that situation, literally, they sort of help hold you upright almost. Um. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a bit hard to sort of... Bit of a stretch, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, just to clarify, you know, when the individuals came in to do the test, they were on their own. They didn't, they weren't surrounded by their friends. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I meant figuratively speaking rather than literally. Yes, yes, no, exactly. But it does, you know, suggest, um, you know, and and sort of add weight to the argument that it's the same sort of underlying, uh, you know, brain mechanisms involved in both, you know, sensing physical pain and also sort of sensing, you know, social pain when we become, you know, disconnected from others um, and sort of endorphins also important for providing us with social reward and, um, you know, feelings of pleasure. And this way we're sort of motivated to, you know, keep in touch with our friends and family and uh, and keep our social bonds close to us. Mm. Uh, I suppose it's logical enough when you think about it because we are sort of social animals. Mm, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, we've, um, you know, we've evolved as social animals and to have, you know, real social interactions with other individuals. Um, so, for example, um, some preliminary results from my co-author, Professor Robin Dunbar, um, suggest that um, also this endorphin system is triggered when, you know, we, someone touches our skin or lightly strokes us. Um, and there are these special nerve fibers in the body that are activated. Um, and so this really does emphasize the importance of, you know, true social interactions for us, and um, which is especially sort of pertinent in this day and age when so much of our, you know, social interactions seem to be taken over by social media and sort of o- online um, interactions instead. Yeah, I just, just to, I was going to ask you just to conclude. Uh, I, I presume though there is no substitute for real contact with you know you know these people say I've got nine hundred friends on on Facebook. That really that's not going to reduce your pain threshold. Um, yeah, well, we didn't look at social media, but I mean there may be there may be some correlations. So you know, you, often if you have more friends on Facebook, you tend to have you know larger social networks in real life. Um, but it's an interesting question. So you know, nobody has looked yet at whether um, we also get sort of a trigger in the endorphin system when we um, interact with other people on social media. I mean, this could be the case, for example, you know, f- uh, getting a sort of a feeling of reward when someone for example, like something on your Facebook page. Um, but, you know, whether this is as, as good for us as, you know, um, real social interactions is something that's interesting in sort of a future avenue for mm. further research. Yeah, sounds like part two of your uh, study. Katarina uh, Kat- <laughs> Johnson, a uh, doctoral student at the University of Oxford. Uh, thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Fascinating stuff. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. Mitsubishi Motors.ie
Ie. Independent Senator Ronan Mullins' easy re-election to the Shannon during the week unleashed a rather vitriolic reaction on social media about the state of third-level education in Ireland. The obvious implication being that anyone who voted for a candidate with uh, Mullins' social viewpoint must by right be an idiot. So have the self-appointed guardians of tolerance, the liberal left, themselves become a driver of intolerance? And is it no longer okay to be a conservative in modern Ireland. Columnist and former diplomat Eamon Delaney joins us now to discuss it. Uh, Eamon, thanks indeed for joining us. Very good piece, I think we should say, to start in the uh, in the Irish Times by a journalist based in Australia, John Power, on this issue. And he was making the point that uh, it's become the norm, particularly on social media, to decry and slag off anyone who happens to be conservative or have even mildly right-wing views. Yeah, uh, it was an excellent piece, and it's a credit to the Irish Times that they uh, published it because they wouldn't, in many ways, be the house organ of such people. Although it must be said that they therefore would have writers of the calibre to interrogate that kind of discourse. Um, and it was a very good piece. Uh, but I, I don't know if it's the norm, uh, Shane. One would hope it wasn't, but unfortunately, it was a norm to, to, to pour vitriol on people have a completely different perspective and, and it's usually uh, like people who are conservative or seen as old-fashioned and antiquated, which is that side of the fence of the argument. But but it has become the norm on social media and the toxic quality of Facebook, Twitter is such that it just becomes, as, as the phrase in the article said, an echo chamber. But um, I, what I think is really depressing though is it's, it's emblematic of a larger intolerance in Ireland now as it swings kind of you know, aggressively uh, or uh, not long overdue as well, I must say, into modernity in that these things, thoughts and beliefs that are seen as the past are, have to be got off the stage immediately and hurry quick and be gone. And why are you still around? We thought when Lucinda Crichton was lost her seat, uh, not just Twitter people, but columnists and uh, esteemed newspaper journalists, and we won't mention any names in this discussion, but we know who they are, saying, "How? why are you still around? Why do you even have a Twitter account or uh, a homepage or, or a website? It, it's kind of a, a disbelief uh, that you can hold views contrary to those that are seen as progressive and uh, liberal and broad-minded. But, of course, the huge paradox is this is incredibly narrow-minded, it's incredibly illiberal, and... Um, Roland Mullen is someone who seems a very engaging person. He doesn't seem an unpleasant person uh, or negative. And there are those people in public life, as you know and I know, uh, and we meet them on all, on all kinds of issues. So he looks like a guy who's open-minded to having discussions uh, and debates. So it's a shame that some of the people who are pouring vitriol uh, won't do the same. Mm. Because uh, the definition, presume, I would have thought, of liberalism is w- would encompass the fact that you respect the views of others and you're tolerant of the fact that others don't necessarily share your views. Well, that's the, the kind of classic liberal, uh, and and I think that's what it was. But I think increasingly, I, I think there are those who are liberal and broad-minded uh, who 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 have that kind of ability to except uh, multiplicity of opinions, are actually quite small. I mean, and I, and I know, go into political parties on this as well. I think it's really increasingly, uh, you know, it's either my way or you're just... There's a lot of name-calling. We live in, an, in a, a, a kind of modern era of 
of kind of getting your sound belt out quickly and scoring points. And we see it with political parties and it just becomes tiresome. And so you see it on the broader social issues. And, you know, this that idea of the liberal uh, is in their own heads, they're being tremendously progressive and tolerant, and but but in fact they're anything but. But but this is long standing. Like you know, uh, the likes of the Guardian newspaper in the UK, the Guardianistas, or is the nickname used for those who follow it devotedly. Like they would have a section on sections on family, on politics, on lifestyle, where they think they've been immensely progressive in embracing all kinds of um, lifestyles and ways of being. But in fact. Not at all. They're, they're, they get incredibly angry at those who still uh, do traditional ways of doing things, be it on law and order, be it on faith and worship, uh, be it on not accepting, um, you know, modern ways of life. So it, it becomes the most illiberal of, of liberal things. Now, a lot of that is is because uh, just focus on the issues that Roland Mullen and others would get attacked on. Uh, on uh, abortion is such a divisive, dramatic issue because people think those who are pro-choice would feel, well, this is my body or woman's body, and others believe there's a life involved. Uh, so, but let's even say, on terms of gay rights, people who feel, well, they're asked that, that those who are, I can understand, those who are in the realm of. Uh, you know, advocating for gay rights and gay marriage and more more rights, if you like, uh, would feel personally offended that they are, you know, that uh, I am actually affronted enough. And if we see that we live in an age of people being offended, so I'm offended by people like Roland Mullen, but also gay people like Paddy Manning and others who came on and argued against gay marriage in the referendum recently did so. So that's where the anger and rage comes from. So it's just a kind of, I can't believe that you would even suggest that because you're antiquated and, and you're a religious fanatic. And the religious thing is a kind of smear as many, in many cases because there are many people I know who have no religious beliefs at all but who strongly on just logical grounds or a feeling of strong conservative values oppose many of the things that liberals most advocate. advocate. So it's, yeah, it's become a very polarised mm. landscape. And I, I think... It, it, what, what, what's really kind of alarming is when people in political life, like who are ministers, and again, I'm not going to name names, but well, I will actually, Aaron O'Reardon, who made the senator today, and congratulations to him if he's listening, because he's a good guy on many levels. But I've clashed a lot with Aeon on stuff. Uh, I mean, we remain friends, but I took issue with a lot of his, what I call, I call PC crusades in driving religious uh, instruction out of schools where it was already in retreat and he tweeted one night during the marriage referendum uh, there was a debate between Colm O'Gorman and Ronan Mullen and his tweet was I want to live in Colm O'Gorman's Ireland full stop now my response nothing to that wrong is, with that really is well, well, why don't you want to live in both of those people's Ireland you know why don't you work on this is my diplomat hat on now why don't you conciliate and try to reach out and rather than you are backward I don't want you in my Ireland. I mean, Jesus, Shane, I would feel very frightened to be living in Colm O'Gorman's Ireland if it was run entirely on the principles of Colm O'Gorman. You know, at times I find uh, Colm O'Gorman to be someone who is all but missing. Well, I think it, I the dog collar, the yeah, dog collar, and the crucifix. Yeah, so, I think I think you're being unfair to to, to Colm O'Gorman here. I, th- I think we need to be careful about. Why, why do you think I'm even unfair? I, 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 well, that, that's your well, opinion again. We're all entitled to <laughs> opinions. I mean, Colm O'Gorman's a nice guy. Meet him in the street, but I, I, I he, I find his 
Well, I, I think your I think your wider point about not wanting to live in one person's Ireland is a good one. I don't think uh, there would be anything remotely frightening about Colm O'Gorman's Ireland, but okay, I think well, I think you make a fair point about why not want to yeah. live in an Ireland where both those views are respected. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think my point was, and I see your point there because I actually probably now here is me <laughs> showing intolerance. But I think my point was the minister for uh, inclusion, as Aon was then, should not tweet in that way. That's something that someone, you know, the trolls say when they pour on at night for yeah. Well, the interesting show and that. And anyway, look, it, it's it's it, we are where we are. And yeah, the middle uh, ground is where a compromise and stuff gets done. So on the fringes, uh, we, we see this kind of comment. Yeah, jo- John Power in his piece, he quotes, actually, I, I thought this was the strongest bit, where he quotes the American essayist Emmett Renson, who actually is a man of the left himself. And uh, Renson was lamenting this smug style, as he described it, that exists in American liberalism uh, in an essay he wrote. He said that too often self-described liberals paint those who disagree with them as not just wrong, but actually stupid, ignorant and bad, rather than even make the faintest effort to understand the point of view mm. of their opponents. They mock and they they ridicule. I, I think there is certainly a truth to that. Yeah, there is. A, that, 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 that's very apt. And, and, and not only that, but that's a feature uh, through many of the political cultures we'd be familiar with, like Britain and the UK and wider fields, through certain decades. I mean, the current um, situation with Trump, who, who, by the way, many of his supporters do actually uh, often come out with appalling stuff, and, that, and we have to be able to call that out as well. But but he taps into a sense of alienation there, especially among working class or blue collar, as they call it in America, people who feel that the modern Democratic Party with uh, the values of what they call the two coasts, you know, the coastal elites, uh, to use this phrase. I mean, this is a culture war that I was familiar with from the 90s and living in America. People think it's all new, but it's, it comes back every decade. It's kind of getting worse. They would feel that they're being, you know, preached up from New York and L.A., you know, Hollywood and academia and so on, and that the modern political culture has lost touch with the ordinary grassroots. And thus, people like Trump can fill the vacuum. And uh, I mean, I heard Jeremy Ferrer talking about this actually recently. I think in a show on your on, on an interview in your own um, uh, news station. But but it happened in Britain as well in the seventies and eighties. It's how Thatcher cleaned up. I mean, oh, and, and it's the ordinary working class values are are a certain version of them feel then rejected and kind of demonised and, and and you know by middle class liberal uh, uh, academics or progressives inverted commas. And that's a disconnect that did great damage to the left, actually, in, in Britain and in other cultures. It's, it's as if modern, the modern left, which was you know, trade union and working class values and traditional, became taken over by um, yeah, people interested in much more about you know, social, sexual politics. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and yeah, just demonizing, you're, you're just stupid, you're backward, uh, you're, you're, you know, uh, pitbull politics in the UK or in, and the equivalent in the US. You know. Okay, uh, lots of text coming through to 52106 and this. Anne says, uh, good piece. I'm a liberal who has faith and I'm pro-life. Hard to take the personal intolerance. Um, another listener says, I'm one of those lefties who tweets but I only engage in respectful debate. Whenever I tweet in support of repeal of the eight, I get huge abuse from a small but very vociferous uh, bunch. Yeah, I suppose it's a fair point. It's not um, It's not only people on the left who are, who are tweeting um, aggressively. Uh, why on earth should I have respect for Ronan Mullen's beliefs? Asked one listener. He's free to have them, which is more freedom than conservatives allowed free thinkers in the bad old days of Catholic rule. What, what would your response be to that, Eamon? Well, you see, that is, 
is kind of true, but you see, you can't demonize Ronan by what went on in the past. You know, I mean, I'm reading Ulysses here again uh, from my sins, and uh, I was stunned by actually just how angry Joyce is. Clearly, the Father Conmy portrait of the supercilious Jesuits, and I won't go into the characters in the book, but and you know, Joyce wasn't a great hater, but the Church did a lot of the control, but that's that's gone now. I mean, what, what gets me about the antagonisms of the Church is that. You know, I see with my own kids going to a nominally Catholic school where it's so religious light, L-I-T-E. I mean, it's so gone because there are people there from the entire United Nations in terms of nationalities. But that's not fast enough. There's aggressive secularism which wants to see it gone. So that person making that comment is kind of right, but that's the past. And you can't blame Roland Mullen for the past. I think yeah, people like uh, David uh, Quinn, they stand up and say, wow, and the abuse happened as well. Um, yeah, I suppose the point is, yeah, you should have respect for people's beliefs as long as they're not hurtful or dangerous. And there's nothing in Ronan uh, Mullen's beliefs. You might fundamentally disagree with them. They mightn't be your beliefs, but they're not hurtful. They're not dangerous to people. No, they're not. But that's what I would feel. But I think a lot of people are projecting onto Ronan Mullen uh, a lot of their anger at the Catholic Church and at religions in general, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, brought, I brought this out to just Catholicism. I'm, 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 and this is where there's many differences on people on the right and the left. All the people I know who are on the libertarian right would support the Charlie Hebdo cartoons being published. I personally didn't. I just believe the objective respect for Islam as well. And I'm and, and, and not kowtowing and bowing down to extremism. But if people want to wear a headscarf in France, I have no problem with that. I'm living at live. But don't, don't demonize them after uh, either. Um, I think we don't need to be too depressing about, uh, depressed about, about this kind of vitriol being traded in terms of insults, because I think most people, like some of your uh, texters are saying there, do want to engage and do want to get on. I mean, I, I, I found things have in some ways got better. Well, certainly for me personally, I used to just come on and, and get dogs abuse. And, you know, uh, now you put your head out and you generally, if you engage and you, you just develop a thick skin, put it that way, you know. Yeah. Okay. But, um, but I just want to make one other point. Though. Yeah, just briefly, I, if you will, I, I, Amy, we're, we're out of time. Yeah, just very quickly. I do think Ireland needs more debate, though. I mean, I do find that the, the consensus in Ireland, and I don't include news talk necessarily in this or yourself, is a mushy, liberal, uh, you know, it's a kind of, it, 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 the Conservatives need to be more, we don't have a Daily Mail, we don't have a Daily, Daily Telegraph. Perhaps that's a good thing, but I think we just need more actual debate and division. Uh, I think division's a good thing sometimes. Yeah, we should say, just to be clear, there is, of course, an Irish Daily Mail, but I, well, I, is, I, yeah. I know the point you're making. It's a softer uh, version, yeah. yeah. Uh, Eamon Delaney, a columnist and former diplomat, thanks indeed for joining us. The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Giving everybody an unconditional basic income, regardless of whether or not they work, would seem to be the opposite of what capitalism actually stands for. But is it possible that giving people free money could actually be what saves the global economy in the 21st century? One man who thinks so is Scott Santons. He is a writer and blogger with the Huffington Post and an advocate of universal basic income. And indeed, I think I'm right in saying a beneficiary of a a universal basic income. We we might talk about that in a moment. But first off, uh, you're very welcome to the programme, Scott. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, uh, a universal basic income. Tell us how the concept would work. 
Yeah, so essentially the best way to look at this is that it's, uh, it's the creation of a minimum income floor. So right now everybody's essentially guaranteed a minimum income of $0 per year per month. And universal basic income is essentially saying that your new minimum income floor is set at or around the poverty line is uh, what it would be in most countries. So in the U.S., we're looking at around $1,000 per month, but that can vary. The important part is that everybody receives it as a minimum. And if you do that, as soon as everybody actually has a minimum income amount, then there's a lot of programs that you no longer need anymore. You don't really need to target uh, benefits to those uh, who you qualify as being in need. You don't need welfare. Uh, and there are even things that uh, distort the market, like minimum wages, that you also would not necessarily require anymore as well, because people would have the ability to turn down jobs that don't pay enough, in which case uh, that wages would go up for low-demand jobs. And the difference between that and, say, the system of social welfare we'd have in this country, where you know typically here you'd get eight hundred euro a month on the dole. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is what that everybody, including those people at work, gets that. Yes, everybody, everybody would get it, and that's really one of the big problems with the existing uh, means-tested benefits is that by attempting to target people uh, who you qualify as the only ones who need it you create this uh, division and stigma between those who believe that they need it too and aren't getting any help and those who do get it. And then those who do get it, they are effectively taxed at very high marginal tax rates uh, for working. They're effectively punished for working. If you if you work and 85 cents is taken away from you uh, for every dollar that you earn, there's not really much incentive to work. So mm-hmm. that's what we're, that's what we're seeing right now uh, with these, with the existing benefits. And it's actually, also, why Finland uh, and is so interested in looking at this as well for reforming the the Finland welfare system, and that's because we're looking at new forms of work. Uh, we don't really have the same forty-hour uh, uh, career-long work that we used to. Now, people are there's more uh, part-time work and contractual work, freelancing, okay. uh, gig labor, these kinds of things. Uh- and if you in the existing system. You those don't really work really well. You're prohibited. It, it hurts to do that. Okay, I've I've put this idea to politicians before, and they generally come up with two reasons why they say it wouldn't work. One is they would say, "Ah, oh, look, this, this is just it's a it's a layabout's charter. It basically actively encourages people to, to you know to to sit in the scratcher and, and and do nothing." And the second thing they say is the cost of it. You know, he's they'd say, "You know, you've got a job at the moment. We're not giving you eight hundred euros a month, and we'd have to start doing that." What would you say in response right. to those two arguments? Well, on the first hand, again, with the with the work disincentive versus incentive, I, the current system is a disincentive. It's uh, by uh, by losing benefits as you work, you're you're disincentivized from working. Whereas with a basic income, no matter what anybody does to earn extra income, that's income earned on top of it, and that's a much better incentive. Now, as far as, like, what evidence do we have for that, we have actually experimented with this before. Yeah. We looked at this in the U.S. in the 70s. We looked at this in Canada in the 70s, and we saw actually very small uh, work disincentive effects. And even then, it wasn't so much a, a people choosing to work less. It was more of a shift from wage labor to other forms of labor. So students ended up uh, going back to school and getting degrees and... Uh, Mothers, uh, new mothers focused on, uh, you know, the care work of being a new mother. And primary earning males actually spent more time between jobs. It wasn't that they reduced their hours. They spent more time between jobs looking for the next job, in which case that's great for, uh, 
for putting pressure on wages to go up. Uh, because if, if you're if you have to take the first job that comes your way, you don't really have much bargaining power. Mm. So that's a big difference. What about the cost issue? Now, the cost issue, we need to look at uh, what, it, in the country that we're looking at that, the question is what's being spent right now. And because a lot of money is already being spent. And it's not only on welfare programs, but it's also on uh, tax credits and subsidies and all these other uh programs and whatnot that both have bureaucratic costs themselves, which is wasteful, and also the uh, the fact that it distorts markets as well. So if you're interested in more of a, of a free market, you want to get rid of as much of that as you can. And so basic income is actually a way to simplify the tax code as by, and you can save all this money in the process. So like in the U.S., like for example, it would cost about $3 trillion in total revenue for a poverty-level uh, universal-based income. But we're already spending about half that. So the question is, how do you come up with the additional $1.5 trillion? And that's actually a fairly small percentage, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Now, the other thing to look at this, too, is that we do actually save a lot of money in the process above and beyond this. And by that, I mean, in Canada, we saw a 8.5% reduction in hospitalizations. So you see that, that people are healthier. And if people are healthier, then they don't need to be treated as much. And then, of course, it's cheaper. And how much are we spending on the cost of crime, the cost of homelessness? What are the total costs of poverty? And even what are the costs of, uh, of lower uh, productivity? If people are not interested in their work, uh, how much of an effect does that have? If people are overworking, how much of an effect does that have on productivity? So if you put all of this together... And actually, if you look at the whole big picture of the economy, you'll see that the basic income actually does save more than it costs. Mm. What about, I mean, if you're giving it to everybody, then you're, you're, I mean, just think of an American example. You're giving it to Donald Trump. You're giving it to Tom Cruise. You're giving it to Bill mm-hmm. Gates. Is there not something a bit ridiculous about giving hugely wealthy people $12,000 a year? No, it's because it's, it's hugely simplified to do it that way. And don't worry about them because they will pay more in taxes than they will be receiving. Yeah. It's just it's a way of, uh, of simplifying it down. It's uh, like covering everybody in advance and worrying about the clawback on the, on the back end via the taxation we already do. Then it just simplifies the entire process. And also, the, the thing about making sure it's given to everybody is it avoids uh, what's called type 2 errors or false negatives. So as an example, in the U.S., you're looking at one out of every four people who qualifies for housing gets housing assistance. Uh, as far as our welfare program, which is called Temporary Assistance Community Families, one out of four people nationwide who qualifies for that gets that. So it just the, uh, the attempt to target people and apply these tests means that people who should get it, who we even say should get it, don't. And if you cover everybody, then you no longer have to do those tests. So instead of, you know, one out of 10 people getting this report or 10 people, 10 out of 10 people get this. And yes, one of those people is rich. Don't worry about them because they will be taxed and they'll pay more, uh, more into it to make it out of it. Okay, a couple of last uh, questions uh, before we let you go. You're actually a beneficiary of this yourself. Uh, tell us how, how it's worked that you, you, have, you have a basic income and how has it affected your life? Yeah, so I have crowdfunded my own basic income uh, via a platform online called Patreon. And this means that uh, my income is created by about uh, over 200 people who are giving a, a monthly small amount, uh, a varying amount, 
uh, to me on a monthly basis. And that creates for me an income floor of $1,000 per month. And be, because of that, I've noticed that there's actually a huge increase in security. Like I didn't realize until I had it what I didn't have. Uh, and by that, I mean everybody who has a job right now of any kind, you can you know, be fired. You have fears of, of losing your job. And you could be uh, for a mistake of some kind. It could be just because, you know, a dispute with the boss. And it could be because of technological unemployment. It could be because of downsizing or it shifted overseas. Like, but nobody knows for sure that they're going to have that income the next month. Anything could happen. But when you have an, a guaranteed income that you know will always be there, then those fears aren't there in the same way. And that is actually why it has such a big effect on uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, if you decrease the risk of failure, then you can expect people to take more risks. And more secure people are going to, to look at things differently. Like we're worried in the U.S. about the rise of, of Trump. And, uh, you know, what is it that's causing this? And I think a large part of this is just economic insecurity. Like people don't know what's going to happen and they're worried about their future income. Okay. And I, I don't feel that. I, I have uh, solid income security. It's really, it's, a, it's kind of a transformative thing. Okay. Final question, Scott, just uh, briefly, if you can. Do you see this? I mean, you're obviously a very passionate advocate of this. Do you see this happening in, in countries at some point in the future? Oh, sure. Uh I believe it's going to be inevitable at some point in the future. And I believe that uh, once the first countries start doing it, the countries who don't do it are just going to be seen as not as competitive because it really opens the door to uh, automation. And automation is so much more productive. Now, uh, in Switzerland, Switzerland is going to vote on this on June 5th. They will, through direct democracy, through a citizen uh, initiative using petition, they will vote on this. And it's going to be, you know, yes or no. They'll decide for themselves. Finland is actually putting together a two-year-long pilot project. They really are interested in this as well. And there's countries all over. Canada is also thinking about their own uh, pilot experiment as well to see how that works in Canada. Okay. And uh, just country after country is really looking at this. So the question is, who will be the first country to do it and when? And that's, uh, that's a very interesting question. We'll see. But it's definitely going to happen somewhere. Okay. And once that happens, going to be seen more. Okay, fascinating stuff. We'll, we'll watch this with interest. Uh, Scott Santons, a writer and blogger with the Huffington Post. Uh, thanks indeed for talking to us. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. Mitsubishi Motors.ie.